Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Join us here every Friday night at 8 p.m. or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Shauna Coughlin is a kindergarten special ed teacher in Coney Island, New York, and her book, Skylar's Invisible Thread, is proof no matter what happens in life, you can pick up and move on and make a difference in the process. Hey, Shauna, let's start with your inspiration. Um, What inspired my book is, unfortunately, my son was killed. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah, so he never made it home, and that's what inspired my book. What happened? He was killed on a Sunday night. He was coming home from his dad's house and got into a car crash. He was 17. I'm so sorry. Oh, I know. The worst day ever. Did writing this kind of help you deal with that? It definitely does. Yeah. Um, I did it, you know, of course, to honor him. You know, at first I was like, oh, my God. And still, you know, what can I do to honor my son? to, you know, carry on his name and just as his mom to like show him that I love him and I'll never forget about him. But then the second thing that, um, you know, came up almost just as quickly as honoring my son is helping people. You know, I immediately just felt like, what can I do to help? I do, you know, I don't want anyone to be sad you know, to feel as bad as I feel. And I know they do. So what can I do to help? I, you know, just always wanted to like, really help people. And um, so working with children, um, I taught for a long time in Massachusetts. And I've always taught special education. And um, I've always had So I've always worked with like an alternative population of children that seem to um, have a lot of distress in their lives. And part of that is death. So I've had a lot of, even before my son Skylar died, um, I've always had children asking me about death. And, you know, it's usually their mom or their grandma or their dad. Um, you know, where did they go? You know, they died. My dad died. And where did he go? You know, I miss him. All they know is that they died and they're gone. Um, and they miss them so much. So I used what I learned after um, my son passed to write a story, write this story for children. Um, because I just really wanted to teach them what I learned because I believe in it so much. And I really wanted to help them process death and make sense of it in a very like real way that little children can understand. How do you lay out this book? So Skylar um, basically walks through the world. So it's my do- it's myself, my daughter Cassie, and Skylar. And the first half of the book, Skylar is alive and he's still with us. Um, and so we just talk a little bit about our life and that Skylar is 
the third person in our family. And the number three is an angelic number. Um, I've learned a lot about numerology and the number three is a really special number. Um, so we just talk a little bit about our life first and what a great kid Skylar was. Like he was just so talented. He could play the piano. He um, was always helping his friends. You know, he was just such a good kid. He would help me around the house, um, bring in the groceries and different things, you know, that maybe my my, you know, daughter didn't want to do as much, but she definitely did help me. But Skylar was just such a good kid. So it starts like that with the three of us living on earth together and the great things that Skylar does um, while, you know, while he's alive. And then halfway through it switches. So Skylar is killed and, but it doesn't say that in the book, it just switches. I transition into it by saying, and then tomorrow um, Skylar is in heaven. So that's the transition. And then the second half of the book is, is Cassie and I communicating with Skylar while he's in heaven. So it talks about Skylar sending us pictures in the clouds. You know, he'll say, um, mom, I'm sending you, sending you a picture of Batman. And then I look up and I see Batman in the clouds. And then on another page, my daughter and I are walking through the woods and we come upon a deer and, you know, we know that the deer is there giving us our little hello from heaven, from Skylar. Um, and that's pretty much how it goes, you know, looking at the sunset and just getting faith in the beauty of a sunset that Skylar is still watching over us, as well as all of our angels. And the title of the story, Skylar's Invisible Thread, is, like you said, Skylar is my son. And the invisible thread is the um, relation to our connection to the heavenly realms while we live on Earth. That's and, beautiful. Yeah. That really is beautiful. Thank you. Do, do little kids ask what happened? How come he's here one day and he's in heaven the next? No, they have never asked me that. No. Interesting. So you have had the opportunity to read this to little kids. I have. And they yeah. and they haven't asked that. And I've actually never even thought about that. But that's an amazing question that hmm. definitely some of them might ask. They well, maybe not. Might. I mean, if you're five years old, six and, years old, maybe not. And you're exactly right. Maybe not. They just kind of like keep moving on. You know, right. they just go with the flow. They're just gathering the information that is presented to them. And then they don't even question it. So it probably could happen both ways. Yeah. This book reminds me, I, there's a prayer about, you know, I'll see you in the woods. I'll see you. Yes. Um, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yes. And I will see you in the things that you like to do. You know, I'll see you in the water swimming. I'll see you on the bike riding, you know. I'll see you in those things. Uh, the, I'll see you in nature. Um, yes. You know, my 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 mind immediately goes to, you know, the parent groups that are out there helping parents deal with the loss of a child. And I know this is a book for children, but, uh, you know, would that be a comfort to them? Yeah, and that's such a great idea. And I wish I could do more of that. That's what I would love to do more of. I bring it everywhere I go. So I go to like compassionate friends. I go to my 
um, every other week groups. So I bring it where I go. Um, but I have never, you know, like presented it to another group or anything like that. But I have given it to as many people as I can. I've given it to like my um, counselor who also works with children. I've given it to a couple other counselors that I know that they work with children. Um, Is there something, something else you might want to write about down the road? Well, I mean, the next project that I actually thought of was I've learned a lot about heart math. Um, it's just another really fascinating topic of our hearts are so much more than pumping blood through our body and keeping yes. us alive. They have their own, basically their own intelligence. Their own brain. Yes, yes, they have yes. their own brain. Yes. And, they, and our heart actually sends more messages to the human brain than the rest of our body. I did. Yes, I did see that. And like it, it, it really like the first thing I thought about was the broken heart when your heart literally is broken. Yeah, exactly. With sadness, with a loss, you know, some with a boyfriend, you know, husband, you know, when your heart, it really does break. It really does. It's, It's like there's an emotion going on there. In your I know heart. it does yeah. the same. It does the same thing in animals. Um, I know people have actually died from a broken heart. Animals also. I recently read an uh, article on a baby elephant that had died from a broken heart. I mean, you don't read about it a lot, but every once in a while you do, and you'll read. It. Just within the last couple of years, I read about a mother, you know, that died just a couple days after her child and they were saying that she died from a broken heart, you know, and yeah. also and recently, Oh, it was the, there was the school shooting in Texas. Yes. And the, one of the police officers. Yes. Right. Yes. And they said, and then he died like a, had a heart attack like a week later. Yep. Right. Yes. They said the same thing about him. They said it was his grief, his broken heart. He just, you know, his heart couldn't take it. Um, so I think that's fascinating. And I thought to myself, if I could put that into a children's story, um, for, you know, for children to know how much your heart, um, communicates with your brain and how much, uh, our feelings really affect us. And matter. That's why they matter so much. Yes. All of that. Because I also, I feel like it's another thing that children don't really know. Like I feel like most of us are still taught, you know, your heart keeps you alive. You know, don't smoke, eat healthy, take care of your, you know, all of that, take care of your heart. But not, not a lot of children or even people know the intelligence of your heart. So I, that was my next, but you know what? It is so expensive to, publish a book that I, that's what stopped me. Um, uh, I, I just don't have the finances, which right. is so unfortunate. Um, but yes, but that would be the next one. If I, right. you know, make it big someday, that's, <laughs> what, that's what's next in my little list of, well, if you know, it would be nice if you could just make back what you spent to get this book published. And that then, would, yes. And that's possible. That, that, that is, is possible. possible. I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm not going to say it's easy. But I can tell you after 10 years of doing this, some people really do figure it out. Good. They figure out the right audience. 
they they take the most unconventional paths and yep. manage to at least make back what they invested. And then other people don't even care. They just are so happy that they were able to accomplish this. But, you know, I mean, that's that's nice if you can afford to do that. But so you don't know. Anything's possible, Shauna. Thank you so much. You are exactly right. If you ever visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Museum in Holmdale, New Jersey, James McGinnis just might be your tour guide. It's the perfect job for this vet who served in South Vietnam from 1966 to 1967 as a senior scout observer in the Reconnaissance Delta Company, 3rd Battalion, 21st Infantry Regiment, which he details in his book, Romeo 1-1. Now, it was someone who took your tour, right? Who you credit with helping you get this book published. My name is Nora Thompson. Mm-hmm. In 2019, Nora came down with her family to take a tour and uh, then I heard from her about uh, about a couple of months later she was going to Brookdale College she had some courses where she was uh, doing some papers on the Vietnam War so she said I wanted to reach out to you because you're the only one I know from that served Vietnam and we become very friendly the entire family and I mentioned one time to Nora and her her aunt Nancy I said you know in Vietnam I kept a diary and I told them the story of how I put a diary together which was uh, given to me by a very close friend of me she goes, did you ever think about putting it into a book? And I said, no, I've never thought about it. But she goes, well, Aunt Nancy is in the publishing business. They actually gave me the inspiration to do it. And we started this probably last November. And I made copies of the diaries. And Nora, she actually typed it out into a Google Doc file. And she retyped the entire stuff so it could be adjusted and everything. That's great. You know, that sometimes that's all we need is that little push from someone to say, you know, you got to do this. Oh, yeah, sure. But it sure helps that you had written everything down. Now, you were in Vietnam for a year? From uh, July 66 to July 67. I was drafted in October 1965. And uh, a very close friend of mine, Dennis Buttercavoli, uh, when we were going to the draft board in Union City, New Jersey, where we were going to you know, Fort Dix, gave me the diary and, and inspired me to, to write this stuff okay. down. Oh, my gosh. The name of your book is Romeo 1-1. Right. The reason I wanted it to be that name is because any veteran that served in Vietnam, if they're infantry like I was, when you were out in the, uh, in the field, in the bush, and you're doing patrols and all kinds of different things, you had to communicate with other units. And how we communicated, we used the PRC-25 backpack radio with a battery. And everybody had a call sign because you couldn't say, this is Charlie, this is John. And I was in Delta Company, and I was in Reconnaissance Platoon. So in the phonetic alphabet of the Army, A to Z, R is Romeo. So my call sign was Romeo 1-1. I wanted that title to be the title of the book. So Vietnam veterans, as soon as they show that, they know it's a radio call sign. And that was my purpose of doing it that way. Right. What stands out for you from that experience? Well, when I was writing down the entries... It was almost like I was writing to Dennis, who my, his, his name to me was Denny, D-E-N-N-Y. And the book itself, the first few pages, it does have a, a picture of the book along with, to Denny. It was aimed at other soldiers, the way we used to talk, the way we used to communicate in Vietnam. So there are a lot of Vietnamese terms in the book that I use, because when you're in a foreign country like that, you start to uh, talk with their language a little bit, you know, certain things in, in this country are something, but over there would be something like someone, we wanted to get somebody out of the way and tell them to get out of the way. The Vietnamese term would be Didi Mao, okay? 
So I, I put that in the book as far as that's the language I would use. Uh, I wrote down exactly everything that I experienced during the tour of duty. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There was a lot of bad, a lot of ugly, but there was some good. And uh, it's it's really something special because I wrote down the names of the soldiers. I used the last names. I actually identified them by name and the situation that we, we went through as far as the book. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. I've got 39 pictures in there that I took. There's a few of myself, but most I took of the pictures of the areas we were and the different things I'm talking about. I actually annotated three items at the, the last part of the book, three stories, three stories that are very interesting. Um, we were doing a patrol in, um, in three corps in Vietnam. We were at the big red one with the first division uh, supply base uh, in Tainan. And uh, we were going on a patrol. And typically if you had a patrol, uh, if, if it was toward the middle of the day, the temperature could be 110, 120 degrees, okay? If you took a break from a patrol, just for maybe five or 10 minutes, you want to be in the shade, obviously, right? So uh, we took a break one time, and the sergeant and me didn't get along very well, okay? And he actually sent me and another soldier into the middle of this field at the blazing sun, about the noon sun, right? And I'm thinking to myself, why did he do that? But anyway, I had orders, and I did what he said. So here we are sitting in the middle of the field, and there was a trail not too far from us, and the Vietnamese people were walking on this trail with the ox carts and stuff like this. And this uh, this elderly Vietnamese man, I call him Papa San, because that's what we did, uh, he looked at us, he came over to us, looking at us in the middle of this field, and he actually had some stuff on his ox cart. He, he, went, he went ahead and built us a lean-to to shade us from the sun, which was bamboo sticks that went into the ground, and he put a thatched roof on top to shade us from the sun. I, I thought that was so impressive that the humanity that he showed to me, a soldier who he didn't even know, uh, I said, I just thought this is so humane. So I wanted to give him something. We didn't speak the same language, but I had a folding knife I had purchased in, in uh, Tain Inn. So I gave him the folding knife, and he bowed to me, and then we went in our ways. And I always thought about this, one of my wonderful experiences of Vietnam. There's another story that's right after that. It's a letter I wrote home to Dennis, and it's an experience, probably one of my worst experiences in Vietnam. I'm asked sometime when I do tours, uh, what is your best and worst day in Vietnam? Well, my best day was actually leaving on that aircraft from Tonsonet Airport, okay? You know, you, when you first landed in country, you didn't you didn't think you were going to make it home. You thought something was going to come in your way, and it was not going to be good. Uh, in Vietnam, we had a lot of air mobile assaults. We jumped out of helicopters, you know, chasing and trying to find the enemy, which is very elusive, obviously, because... They were uh, an insurgent. They didn't wear uniforms, and they were they were farmers during the day and whatever else. And at night, they were the killers. And they went out to get you. But the way I put it to this, I said, Dennis, I want to tell you this experience. Uh, the, the most dangerous stuff we did in country was night ambush patrols. We went at night prior to dark, trying to get to a spot where we would ambush the enemy. If he were, they moved at night, moving their equipment around, and that's when I, mostly they moved. So we're outside the base camp, taking in. We had a 14-man patrol at night. We'd go in just before dark, and we'd, we'd uh, set up around this trail to try to, if the enemy came by, we would ambush and kill them, okay? And we had 12 guys in the kill zone, which is two-man positions. That's 12 soldiers, because during the night, you had to have one person awake at every position during the night. So we called it, you know, an hour on, an hour off, basically. And I was on rear security because you had to protect the rear in case somebody snuck up. I was with another fellow. His name was Harold Kaufman. Now, I had been in country about seven or eight months at the time. I was pretty stable. I was pretty used to what was going on, you know, and I had my stuff together pretty well. 
Well, about two in the morning, we heard mortar tubes uh, being fired from behind us. So now I'm facing the base camp. The kill zone, which is the main belt of the ambush, is behind us, uh, staying there in case, you know, the enemy comes by. And I, I knew, we all knew that that was the enemy mortars because it was it was coming from behind us. So the enemy was mortaring the camps of these mortars where they lost these rockets, okay? Now, up to that time in country, I was pretty stable as far as keeping my stuff together. But we internally, we all have the command. We really don't, we can't, we can't control. It's called fight or fleet. Well, what happened at that time, the flight internal command in my body tried to take over. And I started shaking. I started stuttering. And I actually lost com complete control as far as lifting up my rifle. I was shaking like a leaf. And I never, never forget that time. But internally, I said to myself, hey, troop, you got to get your act together because this is going to get terminal in a hurry. And it probably lasted about 23 seconds and I regained my composure. But that's the only time it ever happened to be in country. Now, wow. the sergeant, who as well knew that we were, the camp was being hit by mortars by the enemy, he radioed the battalion headquarters, and he says he, he requested a commission for us to get up from our position. We had 14 soldiers to go after and see if we can get these guys. Well, battalion said, who's your navigator tonight? A navigator would be a soldier that carries the Lanzati compass, mostly during the day, and I would it would be my job as the navigator to get us to any position. And I always was very good with that. I never made a mistake. So they said, who's your nav tonight? And he says, Mac is. Well, my, my nickname was Mac. And they said, if Mac says you're there, you're there. So battalion says, you stay where you are, you hug the ground. We're gonna fire artillery over your head to try to get these guys. So consider this, we're in this position in the middle of the night in Vietnam. The artillery from our base camp is firing over our head. They were, you know, artillery. And the mortars are going the other way. So we're kind of, I think the term stuck between a rock and a hard place pretty much indicates what that was. So now Cop and I rolled right. into the main body because we didn't we didn't worry about anybody behind us at that time. We knew the enemy was behind us uh, on the other side. So we waited for them to come. And we knew that the Viet Cong would mortar twice before dawn. And as soon as the sun came up, they disappear and they go back to disappearing where you couldn't, couldn't find them. So we knew they'd come past our position sometime. And if we, they did, we'd have to open up and, and attack them. Well, they never came past our position. They were probably at about 1,200 meters. But they did go past our position without us seeing them. And they mortared once more just before dawn from the right side. Okay? So when dawn broke, they sent Alpha Company up to go with us to see if we can come to the position where they first mortared from. It was pretty flat ground, so you could really tell uh, with how much, many pressure plates or stuff was on the ground. You could count. So we got to the position where they first mortared from with the with Alpha Company out with us, and it was determined they probably had 72 Viet Cong with automatic weapons and six mortar tubes. So the moral of the story is, if we got permission to go after these guys, I probably wouldn't be telling you this story. <laughs> that was my almost worst night, almost worst night in I Vietnam. I bet you tell that story when you're taking people on tour, don't you? I do on occasion, but it has to be... I don't like the younger children, oh, you know. I don't want to tell them yeah. that's the younger children. Excellent. So you are you are currently a tour guide at the New Jersey Vietnam Veterans Memorial Museum and the Learning Center in Holmdel, New Jersey, if anybody wants to find you. Jim McGinnis, great job. Is there a follow-up to this book? I haven't really thought about it, but there's talk about it maybe. Okay. <laughs> All right. See, I'm a tour guide, so I can talk forever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Does being a tour guide help? Like, are they selling books where you're a tour guide? Um, I'm going to do a book signing. Okay. What I have done is I have purchased 100 soft copy, soft cover books 
and I'm going to donate them to the to the museum. Nice. So the book signing we're doing is already uh, taken care of monetarily. So all the profits are going to go into the into the museum. You're a good man, James. That's what I want to do. All right. T.A. Crosby is in Buffalo Bills country in upstate New York where it snows till like June. We were just talking about that. Snow is a way of life up there. Gives her lots of time to write. And the oldest of her six children inspired her to write her book, Trinity. So what's the story? My, actually, this was over 10 years ago. My oldest son, uh, he didn't want to go back to college in Daytona. And he was going for Homeland Security and st- such. And the thing was, is that I told him at Christmas break, listen, I've always wanted to write a book. So for every chapter, you have to stay. And I will be sending you my chapters. And then finally, I just started sending them the names of the chapters. And he graduated. It was his first year and he ended up graduating. Now he's going to be a state trooper, New York State's trooper, That's starting great. in May. Yeah. My children are my force in life. They they drive me. Yep. They really do. So what's your book about? My book is about a young girl who's coming into her own and didn't realize that she has lived lifetime after lifetime of never finding what it felt like to love or of anything that was part of her, of a family sense. And on this lifetime, she embarks on her 18th birthday. And on that faithful night, she ran and she ran from the misery and the agony and the violence that was happening to her. And she ran into two younger girls or teenagers as well, but she took them under her wing and they became a Trinity through the travels. And little did she know that those two were already marked as well, but she was marked as the one and she did not understand any of it. Everybody was having a life living, loving. And the things that she started seeing were, um, mystical basically like different realms and she couldn't understand any of it and there was one presence that followed her through all the lifetimes and this time was his chance to take her and he was not supposed to he was supposed to protect her so ensuing on that what happened was that it shift shaped back and forth through times and how the three men that were involved with the three young ladies that were the Trinity. They were the band of brothers and they all became very, all very close. Obviously you could tell that one became with one, the other one came with the other. And then Alex and Blade came together, but Alex and Blade did not come together towards um, maybe middle of the book or so. And she fought it because she didn't know what love was. She never felt love. And she never understood why the agony and the violence was, could love conquer all? Was there a possibility of giving yourself? And through the whole entire book, she really gives them all a bunch of hell when you think about it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's realms and. So are they traveling through time? They travel through time. There is a time. Um, Shaper that's in there. Um, Are they vampires? There's vampires, yes. Well, part vampire, but more of uh, an ultra being. Um, If Blade became one with himself, he would be able to control all the universes. 
but he was never allowed to touch the one. She was marked from these other alter egos in these different realms and dimensions and the, the horrors that she went through and how he always showed up to protect her and find her. And she hated him. And she was unable to love because she was created that way. And in the end, love does triumph. She learns to love. But in the whole entire essence, you find out all her lifetimes and everything that she has been through and what she's had to go through just to get to this point. And that there is always the love of our existences because that's what we are. We're creatures of, you know, happiness and love and the hate and the, the anger and the violence that, that gets taken over when there's love and people can succeed through that. And Alex found her way and she's very strong. Very strong. Is this based on anything? Uh, I mean, this is a pretty involved story. You could say that. Um, basically, um, I'll give you a little rundown on me. I've written articles for papers um, dealing with survival of child abuse and things like that. So all those characters are basically part of me. The warrior, the fighter, the victim. So, yeah. So you've, you've written articles about this. And yeah. what what was the... What was the catalyst for you to finally sit down and write this book? The catalyst was, it's been in my mind for a really long time. And you're busy with six children, you know, and finally my two girls, and I still had three up in the rear, but my two girls, teenagers, they saw what was happening in the marital dynamic. And I needed to show them that just because you see does not believe that there's no love. And, um, we really went on a safari, my children and me, during it all. And I can't even say safari in a good way. But I can tell you this, that uh, Trinity is basically my two girls and me, obviously with a lot of my moxie behind them because they were still young, teenagers. My eyes still young. But, yeah, it was it was just an amazing adventure. I'd just start writing. I'd go for a run, and I'd come back, and – it was just there, all the dialogue, all things that needed to come about and how this one got to know this one. And it was just a page after page for me. And I, that's where my son, you know, I made that challenge with him is because he knew for so many years I wanted to write and I never took the time. I took the time just because of life and I never took the time to do and put them on paper, you know? Instead of speaking it, I, I wrote it down. So are you going to keep writing? Absolutely. I have like, well, honestly, I have four different um, starts of books halfway through on each one. It all relates to these characters. There's new characters. Um, and I want to talk to my local country station, um, WYRK. I love them. I love country music. So I'm hoping that I can get in touch with someone there and see if they can, you know, local author. Hey, here she is. Hmm. Boots and all. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, you, you hang in there, T.A. Crosby, mm -hmm. and thanks for taking the time to talk well, to Alice, me. Alice, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. 
Odessa, Texas, home of Friday Night Lights, is where we find Aaron Ballard, who produces commercials and really likes scary stuff, which explains his book, All the Monsters Are Here, 13 Spooky Tales. Let me guess, Stephen King fan? Very much so. Uh, probably way too young to have read Stephen King, but it, it, that and the Twilight Zone inspired me to want to tell stories. I've always wanted to tell stories since I can remember, so... Wait, you're That's too young I'm... for Stephen King, but you remember Twilight Zone? Absolutely. Reruns. From very, very, very <laughs> early age in reruns, yes. It was the one thing me and my stepdad could do together. Aw. So you have 13 separate stories. Yes. Are they linked in any way, or are they all? do they all stand alone? A couple are linked in a little way. If you read them, hopefully you catch on to it, but it's not obvious. Okay. So as you read the story, you may, oh... It is connected, but most of them are standalone. So why now? Why why did you decide to go down this road? It's not easy. Well, it's a combination of wanting to write a book my entire life, but never quite having the time because you know how life gets in the way. And it's really hard sometimes you just sit down and just write when you have a job, when you have responsibilities. And what gave me the opportunity to finally sit down and do it was COVID, the outbreak when everybody was sequestered. And instead of just sitting there not doing anything, I just decided... I'm going to write a book. I am going to do a whole show with nothing but writers who finally decided to do what they've always wanted to do because of COVID. Yeah. COVID inspired more writers than I, than I can, you know, than I can count. Yeah. Right. I, I just wanted to make, make that time use of that time because what else were we doing? I mean, every, I noticed everybody turned to entertainment. Everybody turned to Netflix. Everybody turned to whatever they could watch on their television because that's all they could do. And, uh, I thought, wow, people just turn to entertainment when this kind of stuff happens. And it's, that's why entertainment and writing and it's so important. People need that something right. when there's nothing. Right. And I, I've always wanted to write. And it was like, what am I doing to sitting here? Write a book. Yeah. So share one of your stories with me so we get an idea. Get, get an idea of the flavor of your okay. book here. Well, it's called All the Monsters Are Here. And each story has what I call a monster, whether it's a supernatural or a human, because, you know, the, and they're both capable of being good and they're both capable of being evil. And so, for instance, I have one story called Eden, where, you know, people are trying to escape from zombies who are trying to eat everything. And then I have another story where a zombie is the good guy and the humans are the bad guy. So it's it, it goes both ways. There's sympathy for the monster and sometimes monsters are just bad. But so can humans. So, yeah, there's a story called Night of the Living where a zombie is the good guy. And all he wants to do is see the woman that he once loved. And along the way, he's being hunted by humans. And so I think uh, anybody can relate to that as far as having someone to love and then trying to get to them no matter what the cost. And then also having something in your way like humans that are trying to kill you. Yeah, that'll do it every time, right? <laughs> yeah, that's certainly what the book is. It's both sides. Monsters are good and some are bad. Do we learn lessons? Uh, only in that everybody, if you look at someone, they could be horrifying to look at, but, but underneath, they could be wonderful people. And I think that applies to anything. Uh, monsters, human beings, we're both capable of good, we're both capable of bad. And it's just how how you act, how, how people view you and how you really are. And then those who are willing to look deep enough to see what's real. So have you told everybody you work with that you wrote this book? No, I'm not one of those people that walks around <laughs> bragging. I, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. not that. bragging. You want to sell this book or don't you? 
<laughs> I do. I do. It's just, I, I, I kind of let the book speak for itself. I, I, I put it on my social media, people that know me. Oh my God, you wrote a book. That's great. But All I right. didn't go, Hey guys, I wrote a book and look on my Facebook page. I kind of want people to discover it that way. But, but I do realize, and I am marketing my book to the public with a company. I hired a company to help me and we're going to do a lot of digital marketing to get it out to the world. But as far as people I know, I feel like it's weird. I don't want to force myself on them. <laughs> no, but I mean, people are impressed. Let me let me tell you, there, there, not many people can sit down and write a book. I'm impressed by every single person I talk to, whether they wrote a great book or a terrible book. The fact that you took the time to sit down and put your thoughts together, it is a difficult process. The editing process is al- alone. Oh, yeah. Right? You just want to, ugh, it's so crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you sh- you know, saying, hey, I'm going to have a book signing. Yes, I wrote a book. You would never do that. <laughs> kind of put it on my f- social media. And if someone came to me, it, these are just people I know. Now, people I don't know, I'm very comfortable putting it out there. I wrote a book. Please buy it. Let me know what you think. That's marketing. You got bookstores, right? Local bookstores? Yeah, we have big market stores, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, that kind of thing. But we also have very small bookstores, like we call it. One is called Yield Bookworm. There are a little bitty mom-and-pop bookstores now. Now, I bet they would love to hear some of your stories. Are you a good storyteller? I would like to think I am. I've never actually read anything in front of a group of people, but I really, I'm kind of looking forward to that, actually. I've never done it, but I think I... I think I'm going to do that to these small, <laughs> these small bookstores. Start uh, small. Yeah. yeah. You want to be comfortable. But yeah. then, you know, as people start reacting to what you're reading, yeah. and, you know, you look up and say, wow, I, yeah. I wrote something pretty good. Huh? Yeah. Start That's out small. Reading. Yeah. Start out small, yeah. like two or three people. <laughs> and then <laughs> hopefully it gets bigger. There you go. Yeah. All right. You let me know how you, how you make out with that. You got to keep writing, Aaron. That's my plan. That's what I've always wanted to do, but I never ever thought I could make a living at it. That's the dream. But yeah, that's, that's the goal is to be able to do this for a living. Well, then I'll be talking to you again soon. Okay. All right. Let's check in with Rebecca Alfred D'Amato, author of There Is No Cheese. Hey, Rebecca, where are you? I am in Clarksburg, West Virginia. West by God, Virginia. (laughs) West by God, Virginia. (laughs) Okay. Why? <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> oh, it's just a thing. I mean, you know, West Virginia is just a beautiful, beautiful state. Um, so green and mountainous and beautiful lakes and people. It's just a, a great place. So we say West by God, Virginia. All right. What do you do there? I am a teacher. High school English. So what inspired There Is No Cheese? Is there no cheese in West Virginia? (laughs) There Is No Cheese is a metaphor for the idea that we're all like rats running around in a maze, desperately looking for that golden slice of cheese. And the joke is there actually is no cheese. (laughs) We're just running around aimlessly looking for something that we're never going to (laughs) find, which I know that sounds um, at first hearing maybe kind of negative, you know, like we're, we're searching aimlessly for something we'll never find, but actually the whole book is about the fact that what we're looking for outside 
is actually inside. You know, what a crazy place to hide, but right inside of us. You know, it couldn't be any closer to us than right inside of us. And searching everywhere in the outside world for meaning and purpose when, in fact, it's all right inside of us. Did something happen that compelled you to write this? Yes, many things. But um, way back when I was just, I would say about, well, yeah, I was in kindergarten. So I was around five years old. And um, I became, the word metacognition means the ability to think about what we're thinking about. And being human for me has never come easy, even as a five-year-old. And I questioned everything, um, all of the guidelines, all the rules. And so I started kindergarten, which was at my church. It wasn't really a kindergarten, like in your school system. And um, I, after the very first day, I came home and I told my mother that I was quitting <laughs> kindergarten <laughs> one day and I'd had it. It was enough. The reason being, there was a little girl who I just met that day and she stayed right beside me. And I kept saying she was, she was a breather. You know, she, she, I came home and said, mama, she breathes on me. She stays right there. She wants to talk to me all the time and she's breathing on me. And, <laughs> and I can't take it. You know, I can't take this. And I'm the fourth of four children, but there's a, there's a three-year gap between me and my older sister. So I had spent a, a, a good bit of time as a little kid learning to play by myself and there was something about you know her presence right upon me that I found you know just very disturbing and so my mother said to me Becky why don't you instead of thinking of this little girl as like this bat that's around your head and batting its wings and gross and disturbing why don't you think of her as a little fairy like a little fairy princess with wings that's right there and um, and, and loving you and, and wanting to be close to you. Why don't you try think about it, thinking about it that way? And so I went back to kindergarten hesitantly, but with my mother's advice and what do you know? I started thinking about this little girl who I could tell you her full name right now. I mean, I could see her just as clear as anything um, as a fairy, and the next thing you knew, we became best friends. And we were the queens of the sandbox at playtime together. And that, that story doesn't even appear in the book. But um, the point being that I recognized at a very young age, and this is what inspired the book, that the way that I thought about things created my reality. That the thoughts, the very thoughts that I was thinking created the reality that I would experience. So I was creating my reality all the while living it and reacting to it. And I became aware of that at a very young age. And it made my, um, my young years, as well as into my teens and 20s and 30s, I'm now almost 60, very, it was very unusual to live inside my own head and inside my own body. And the older that I've gotten, the more I recognize how the way I was per perceiving the world was very unique compared to what I hear from other people about the way they perceived the world. Okay, so so lay out your book for me. What, what is in your book? The book is a series of contemplations, questions, poems, flash fiction, 
illustrations from artists all over Harrison County, students of mine that um, contributed very unique and different artwork as well as my children. And all together, it creates a journey which emulates the rhythm and the flow of life and the way that we as soul living in a human body experience this strange combination of this ethereal beautiful light that is ever expanding in trapped trapped in a way but also gifted to live in a human fleshy passionate human body that um lusts for things and has ego and that is a strange and wonderful combination and that journey is not an arrow that shoots straight up so there's a lot of different things in your book can you give me an example of one thing in your book would you like me to read a piece from my book okay um before all the rules i once loved god i once loved me I woke up today, finally, again, to that feeling, deep sigh, fine, fine with me, my life, my choices, all of them, even the crazy and inappropriate. Guilt, we each carry so much of it for things said and left unsaid, done and undone. But the ego teases us to project our guilt outward onto others, scapegoats, all of them, theatrical pieces of the illusion, so we can blame them for our own lack of peace rather than looking inside where everything is, the all of it, heaven and hell. We feel its heaviness. It's just so much responsibility to shoulder. So we throw it away, unconsciously project it onto everybody else, anybody else. It's his fault, her fault, your fault, just as long as it's not my fault. No, no more, not today. Today I own it, all of it, all my choices, the rude, the impulsive, the uninformed, the indignant, the wise, the wonderful, just put myself out there. Not right, not wrong, simply responsible, guilty as charged. Love me, love me anyway, or not. It's all just me creating, learning, and remembering new ways to love myself anyway. The moment is, a both, is both a microcosm of the Infiniverse and a macrocosm simultaneously, because each messiahical moment contains the all in its timeless slice of time. Love myself or not, today I choose non-judgment, today I choose to love me, and guess what? That means I love you too, every version of you, and me, and the kumquat, and the tree. Yes, I woke up feeling okay today. My blanket of forgiveness is big enough for me, big enough for all of us. Suffer no more. Imperfectly perfect. Champagne in a Dixie cup. Nice. Oh, thank you. Definitely paint a picture with that. Well, you know, when my book came out, I had a year of personal illness as well during 2020, the whole entire year filled with surgeries and treatments and things because I had cancer. So um, now I'm getting back into um, promoting my book. I, I did some home parties and had some book signings and I was beginning all of that process. And I, I, Are you okay? You're going to be okay? I am better than okay. <laughs> what, I tell people, what I tell people all the time is that, you know, I wouldn't put anybody through. I had stage 3B rectal cancer and I had to have multiple surgeries, radiation, chemo, all of it. And I would not, I would not 
want to put anybody through the year that I had. But but what I would like to do, what I would want to do is to give everybody what I learned from that year because I learned so much and I grew so much and I never felt so loved in my whole life. That's awesome. I know. Good for you, Rebecca. Well, thank I you. know, turning it around. All right. A mailman in Illinois, Jay Camp, offers a reinterpretation of one of the oldest books in the world in his book, Taking It on Faith. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a reader, and one day I decided to read the Bible as a book from Genesis all the way to Revelations, one shot. You know, and uh, I had some questions and then I started thinking, well, I should write them down. And then once I had the questions, it was like, well, what would the answers be? So I started to write a little bit of a story. And then I said, well, how how would the story begin? So I had to go back and I started it with Gabriel, you know, messenger of the Lord coming up to this regular old person, not not somebody who's, you know, a PhD in religious theology and stuff like that. Just a regular old person who has a bit of a problem with organized religion. And it sort of goes from there. You know, Gabriel tells him he wants to, uh, the, the Lord is wants to talk to him. And of course, Ian, Ian Knight is the character's name and he does not uh, believe who he's talking to, you know, not, as anybody else wouldn't either at this juncture. Uh, they have about three conversations and then God replaces Gabriel and he doesn't believe he's talking to God. So it discusses some of the stuff in the Bible, but mainly it took a turn because I started adding into other things like what's happening now in today's society you know gangs and and uh, the abortion thing and everything else and it just went from there there's a, a few things that people will probably find to be a bit off-putting but it's more because of ian's language because he's sort of a guy of the streets and uh, he grew up but every now and then you know he uses more colorful languages god wants to talk to ian about a lot of things later in the story you find out that one of the reasons is the way ian prays uh ian calls them one-sided conversations because he'll ask many questions of god but you know you never get an answer you know that it, not one that is uh, verbal or you know in a dream it's just the answer is always no because it doesn't happen and ian has had a, a rough life so a lot of that comes down to it it adds into the story uh he went to a, a parochial school and he has a bit of a problem with organized religion because ian's always been the a pain in the butt or inquisitive type and you're not supposed to ask questions in religion class it's like no you, you're always told then you don't believe well ian believes that you have to ask questions otherwise you'll follow anybody so he's always asking questions, and he would get in trouble in school for asking the questions and find his butt sitting in the hallway at school because he was being disrespectful or whatever. And there's many questions, and God tells him when he finally speaks to God that uh, there are questions. One question he cannot answer, many questions he will not answer, but anything else, it's open game. It's up to Ian to figure it out, which questions to ask and how to ask them. The last chapter is actually the first chapter of the next book. Just to 
keep people's mind going. You know, uh, Ian's a flawed. He considers himself a sinner. He's a flawed person. He and he knows it, and uh, brings in uh, a lot of things that have happened in his life. And it tries to correlate that into what he's discussing with, uh, well, God, but he doesn't, he won't even call the guy God. He'll call Gabriel Gabriel, of course, because that's just another name. But, you know, thou shalt not have any gods before me. He won't call this guy God. He just thinks he's, uh, you know, a religious fanatic or some kind of nut. But he always gets into conversations, religious conversations, um, Ian doesn't shy away from political discussions or religious conversations, you know. So it it intrigues him and it drives Ian's wife nuts. So you know, a lot of that comes into play. We're we're watching him, I guess, test his faith. Does he have faith? Oh, he has a lot of faith in God. He questions the human aspect of organized religion because humans can corrupt you know, basically make things out to be in their favor or what they perceive to be um, the truth. Are you talking about your book? Are you, do people know you wrote it? Oh, yeah, there's people that uh, I've sold. I know I've sold books. I don't know how many yet. My wife is managing me, so we put it online on Facebook. Uh, I've got some friends. We've started a new Facebook page for the book itself, and I'll answer questions. And it it basically tells people, though, that uh, a lot of these questions are real. The answers I made up in my own imagination, I guess you would, for want of a better word, I I try to show people that uh, God, that we have all the same emotions as God. God has a sense of humor. and If you read the Bible, you discover that. But it's buried a little bit, so you have to see it. And we have a sense of humor. So in the book, God has a sense of humor. Now, Ian will tick off God, you know, because, once again, he's always trying to uh, discredit this guy's um, God's um, revelation that he's God. Uh, so it, it sort of gets on God's nerves from time to time, but then it comes back around to humor and stuff like that. And the Ten Commandments are dealt with and all kinds of uh, stuff. The Angel Wars is the one I think is one of my better scenarios. And the creationism, of course, I bring that into play. So... I try. I guess you kind of have to. Yeah, right? you do have to. But you can also. I also try to tie in prehistoric man and dinosaurs and stuff because dinosaurs are actually mentioned in the Bible twice that I know of, and uh, but they don't know specifics. They just use the word dinosaur. So it's like, mm. so you know, I try to tie all that into it to show where man has come and where man has uh, come from. Actually, so. You know, it's meant to make people think a little bit, you know, because I, I look back at uh, some of the things like uh, the Branch Davidians and stuff like that. And here's here's people that uh, quite honestly believe that he was a second coming and he promoted that. 
And I look back and think, well, the dude wore glasses. Did anybody bother to <laughs> question that uh, Jesus didn't wear glasses? You know, it's like sometimes you you look at things and and you got to say people sometimes can be gullible, and you know you can't. And I know Ian questions things that he shouldn't be questioning, but that's always been his his. Uh, um, Mo, <laughs> you know, it's like okay, if right. he doesn't understand right. it, he's going to ask. He doesn't have a filter, you know, so right. he's going to put it out there and hope to God that uh, he gets a answer, all right, so to speak. Well, thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Not a problem. All right, we hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Friday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime you want on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Mm-hmm.